Welcome to The Marketer's Journey, a podcast that delivers real conversations and fresh perspectives from senior marketing executives who share the journey they've taken and the buyer journey they create. And now here's your host, Randy Frisch. Welcome to The Marketer's Journey. Today, my guest is the CMO of Financial Force, Nicole Milstead. Now, first off, Financial Force is truly a force in the market. In B2B marketing, they are one of the top strategic partners of Salesforce.com, a company that without a doubt is on the path to IPO. Over a thousand employees and over 40 marketers. And there you have Nicole taking the lead. Now, one of the things that I quickly observed is that she makes her decisions both with purpose and openness. And I use those two words very carefully. You can tell that Nicole has a plan, has a path that she has that she wants to go down in terms of how she picks a company, how she makes the decisions about her team. But she's also extremely open. And that's clear from the first job that she shifted to after doing a master's of social work. Yes, that was not a edit and a master's of social work into being a sales leader at Gartner and ultimately into other great brands like SAP, Oracle, and now, as I said, Financial Force. And at Financial Force, we hit on her approach to understanding data and understanding that the full picture of data requires looking across the entire buyer journey, not just the top of the funnel, but through pipeline to understand what can influence. And she gives us her approach from technology down to people to make this a reality. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Here's Nicole. really excited to unpack your career. Thanks so much for stopping by. Of course, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. Excited for the conversation. Now, this is going to be great. I mean, first off, you are the CMO of such a well-known brand in the B2B space. Financial Force is truly a force. I mean, I've been to Dreamforce conferences and seen the logo everywhere, and we'll maybe hit on that partnership at some point here. But I'd love to go back to to how your career landed you here. And Mm -hmm. what I find interesting is it looks like you had a start more on the communication side versus the demand side. How were you drawn into that? Yeah, so a couple of things before we jump into that. First, thrilled that you mentioned Dreamforce and seeing Financial Force. Obviously, our solutions are built on the Salesforce um, platform. And the reason that I'm bringing up Salesforce is I had a discussion in the same vein not too long ago at a Salesforce women's leadership panel. And we sort of unpacked, there were three Salesforce sales leaders who were very powerful, very established, very accomplished, and myself as one of their leading ISV partners. And we talked about this career evolution and how did we get to where we got to. And as I was sitting up there, I started kind of looking around at these women who were really strong, like I said, very strong, very powerful positions and point of views. And they seemed to have more of a linear career path that, you know, one of them um, runs their high tech business unit. She started in accounting and she parlayed accounting into obviously like what you would think accounting software and how do I help companies and I got, she got into that and she looked at how software changes the nature of the business and she just grew grew and scaled and developed. And I was looking around thinking, oh my, I'm going to have a different message for people in this audience. 
I have a bachelor's degree in international affairs from Lafayette and a master's in social work from the University of Pennsylvania. The reason I'm telling you this is That's because- That's interesting already. Yeah, it's wild, right? It's a wild background. So people, people think, how the hell did you end up as a CMO? And what I said to this group was, you know, listen, I think it's actually kind of rare that people have such a linear career path. For myself and for many around me, I think it's much more circuitous. There's a point in a time where something happens and then your road sort of begins and you take off from there. So for me, I got this master's in medical social work from the University of Pennsylvania and I went into sales. I sold, which is very unusual as well, I sold hospice services. So there are for-profit hospice organizations and I sold to physicians like drug reps do. Well, then I was in sales. And this is a true story. I was in my gym one day in Center City, Philadelphia, and I heard this woman in the locker room talking about her career and how she loved it so much. And I was a little disillusioned at the time. So I said, I'm going over this woman. Well, I, I went up to her, I said, man, I hear you going on and on about your career. What is so great about this job? Well, she was a regional vice president for Gartner Group. Next thing you know, I'm selling for Gartner Group. And so now I'm into the technology world, right? And I'm understanding what, did the, what does analyst relations bring to consumers? What does it bring to vendors? From there, I go into analyst relations. SAP was my account. I manage the relationship between SAP and Gartner Group. I end up running analyst relations. From there, I moved into sort of this really unique hybrid role of business development. And this is what really gets me at a broader scale into marketing, is I basically sat between the sales organization and the marketing organization. And I tried to sort of um, translate the gaps that sit between most those organizations that are very traditional, you know, when sales points at marketing and marketing points back at sales and they don't get along. I tried to make sure there was smoother communication and sort of better alignment between those two organizations. But what I also did was build supplemental demand. So marketing sometimes is going to market what you get the most bang for your buck for. It doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to market every point solution that sales needs to drive demand around. They're going to create the hook, if you will. Yes. Yeah. They're going to create the hook, right? But if you think about if you think about solutions like financial force, we have some big bucket categories: ERP, PSA, customer success, cloud. But maybe maybe we're not marketing broad scale on billing or revenue management. But the field still says I have revenue management opportunities. How do I get demand for those? That's what this business development role came in and did. So we built sales plays that were sort of supplemental demand that the field wanted us to build because they knew they could sell it, but that marketing necessarily didn't have enough cycles. It wasn't, you know, the big catchy thing, the largest sort of grouping of solutions. And so I got a good view on what the sales cycles are really like from a software perspective, got very operational there looking at, you know, deal cycles and the pipeline and the timelines and win loss and what's selling and what's not selling. And I got really close to how is marketing marketing? Why are they marketing? How are they communicating with the field? How do you drive alignment between the two organizations? And so I always sort of sat between these two groups and ultimately I ended up 
as the chief marketing officer over here at Financial Force. So with that, probably you could tell I'm a really, really sales-centric chief marketing officer. Absolutely. Very focused on demand. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, the, that's clearly in your DNA at this point and, and come through the path you've taken, as, as you said, starting in, in sales with Gartner. I'm curious when that when you were in that locker room and you overheard that opportunity, was it the appeal of sales or was it the appeal of technology that lured you in? Because as you said, I mean, you were out there doing a master of social, masters of social work and, and as someone married to a therapist who's got that same degree, I mean, it's right. one thing to go do the undergrad for it. It's another thing to go do the master's. Usually at that point, you are right. focused on people and working with people and not to say people management isn't part of your role, but when did you realize that technology was going to be a big part of your focus? Yeah. So it's so funny that you're asking that question. And with, with transparency, once I got into the School of Social Work, I thought, oh, I might this might not be the right place for me. I was actually supposed to get a law degree. My dad was saying get an MBA. I want I am one of those people who is very into people, particularly wanting to help people. And that's how I landed where I was. But it's a really super versatile degree. I mean, you can see that here, right? And you could, I'm sure you could see it in the career path of your wife. But having gotten into the sales environment from there and that really unique setup, I, you know, I felt like I understood that. I liked that. But it wasn't hospice sales that was going to you know, change the world. It wasn't you know, going to drive economies, right? I had enough wherewithal to say, like, where's the big, and I don't want to say big buck, but like, where is the market, the industry that's going to be leading edge, that really is going to drive economies, that's going to change the way we work, that's, you know, going to change business. And I knew that it was technology. And this was an when you think about it, it was almost like the perfect way for me to get into the technology universe because it wasn't somebody who was saying, you know, come in, you got to know C++, you got to be able to code. I, I didn't, I, I couldn't grasp that, but I could grasp anal analyst research and how right. it impacts consumers and their buying patterns and how it impacts vendors and their selling patterns and how it brings those two worlds together. So I was certainly attracted to the technology world. So I want to go back to this panel you were on that you were so humble about in terms of the other three women, but I, I'm, I assure you people don't build a panel with one person who doesn't belong. And there's no question looking at some of your accomplishments, even just some of the brands you're with. And, and on the surface, people may look at them, companies like SAP, Oracle, Nail Financial Force and say, well, you went with the big winners, but you chose them to your last you know, reply at a time where they were just beginning to disrupt. I mean, SAP in in 96, Oracle in 99, these were not the giants that they are today. A, a little bit about how did you pick your winners? And similarly, maybe more bringing it back to modern day, what confidence did you have that financial force was going to be the winner that is in the future? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's one that I often get asked, believe it or not, particularly when we bring new hires into financial force. The question um, that people often ask is, why are you here? So I wish that I could say, geez, I'm like some great technology Nostradamus, right? And I can tell 
who's going to open up the ERP market with SAP, right? And who's going to change, you know, the world of internet computing with Oracle. A lot of this really with transparency has to do with relationships and people that you meet along the way and people that you work with. And um, I had been exposed to actually a boss that I worked with for a long time who actually recruited me from SAP over to Oracle and then over to Financial Force. Now, with that said, you don't make moves blindly. Right. Just because you've worked with somebody, you have mutual respect, you know, you know, the ins and outs and what their needs are and how you work together. You don't just go blindly. I think it's actually a more interesting story to look at going from these big companies, these companies that were, you know, had a decent size and then exploded to coming down to more of a smaller software company and financial force. Although I think we have like profound opportunities for growth and and are currently exploding and will continue to explode. One of the big drivers for me looking at going from like an Oracle to a financial force is what's the technology? Oftentimes you look at software and there's a little bit of um, chewing gum and you know, shoestring and right. it's going to do this. Here's a, here's a future roadmap. It's going to do this in two and a half years. The product's not quite there. We have really, really good products at Financial Force. Dan Brown runs our product team. I mean, the, our PSA solution is the best of the absolute best. So you look at the strength of the products, the products are there. The, the company's on a growth trajectory, that's there. Companies want to be on a platform. We're on the Salesforce platform, right? De facto standard for CRM. There's gaps along their application portfolio. We fill a lot of those gaps. So I love that platform play. But one of the really big pieces for me around financial force is um, culture. And it's a very unique culture. It is so different as we're talking about these big, huge, monolithic SAP and Oracle type companies to work at a company like Financial Force. And I can tell you one of the nicest things is when you take that, and I, I, I like, I can't believe I'm saying 25 years in the industry, that's that I'm both proud and in pain while I say that, but um, you can take your experience and see where things are broken within Financial Force or room to optimize and you can actually go make the change. So it's an entrepreneurial spirit. You're not trying to steer the Titanic. You can make the change quickly, very agile, and then see the, the fruits of your labor and actually really make, make an impact. Um, so that's a piece of the culture that I like. And then the other piece of the culture that I like is it's just nice. It's a nice place. And that's very refreshing in the technology space. Absolutely. It's it's understated, but so important to wake up and be excited. Nicole, you hit on so many elements of go-to-market. I want to dig deeper on them, but we're going to take a quick break here first on the podcast, and we'll be right back. Want to improve the buyer journey for your customers and your prospects? Look no further than our presenting sponsor, Uberflip. Named a leader in content experience by G2 and a leader in content activation by Forrester, Uberflip will help you accelerate every buyer journey by creating bingeable experiences that will allow your prospects to consume more content faster. Companies like Trimble, Wiley, and 3M are using Uberflip to power their go-to-market strategies, and we created one just for you. Head to uberflip.com journey 
to see how Uberflip can help you leverage the power of personalized content experiences. In my intro, you heard me allude to how Nicole is someone I see as so open. And that's now clear to you hearing how she shifted her career from the masters of social work to sales and technology through conversations happening around her and being able to shift her thinking. I think this is something we all need to be able to do. Yes, we all have a master plan. Maybe we want to be a CMO. Maybe we want to be a CEO. Maybe we want to be in a certain industry. But as Nicole said, a lot of the opportunities she pursued were people in her network who brought her along. And I think we need to be open to go down that door that may be closed, but is open for us by those around us. When we do, we can unleash our true potential in ways we never imagined. Nicole, I want to dig a little bit into what gets you to strategically think about your go-to-market. And one of the things you told me is you qualify yourself as a data geek. Now, Mm -hmm. CMOs have had to get there, but what do you do with all this data that you seem to be amassing? Yeah. Yeah. So I talk a lot about um, being a data-driven marketing organization. And I think, listen, if you can't measure it, it basically doesn't exist, right? But it becomes uh, the challenge of how do you synthesize that data so that you're able to achieve the goals and accomplishments that marketing needs to then contribute to the field that then needs to contribute to the overall growth of the company. So we have objectives by quarter. They're tied to sales objectives and we measure them using Tableau. And so the way that I look at my business is we look at the marketing funnel right? So we're starting at the top with a marketing qualified lead. We're looking at conversion rates. We're looking at velocity. We're looking at why do um, MQLs fall out? Why do they get converted? And then we move that into pipeline. But one of the things that we've changed fairly recently is we don't stop early in the pipeline, right? So we look at those MQLs, how do they convert into early stage opportunities and at at what velocity? But at that point in time, we don't brush off our hands and say, well, marketing's done. We gave you the early stage pipeline and now we're out of here and we're back on to working on to other, creating other MQLs for early, early stage pipeline. One of the things that we've done fairly recently, and this is tied back to that experience of sitting between marketing and sales, is we've extended our view through the pipeline. So early stage pipeline into qualified pipeline. I am mm-hmm. telling you this, I know this, that sales folks really don't care about your MQLs. They care about them maybe as the tip of the spear, and they don't even really care about your early stage pipeline. What they want from you is qualified pipeline. They want to know what can marketing get me that gets to a qualified opportunity. And so we look further down the pipeline, and then we look all the way through to closed one lost bookings, right? So how long does it take us to get from MQL to closed one, what are the percentage rates, what's the velocity, what are the conversion rates, all of that. That's one of the things 
that brings us closer to sales. Marketing sort of looking, measuring, tracking their business in the very same way that sales does. So, I mean, I love me some Tableau. I'm in it every single day. <laughs> I'm looking at what's driving the MQLs, what are our conversion rates, and then I use that data, right, to either say, okay, we're having a fantastic quarter, I can take a deep breath, won't get fired this quarter, or to say, we're not. And what's, what's not working? What is working? And I love it when my team says, I'm pulling the plug on this because it's not working. I love that obsession as you outlined at every stage. I think a lot of us do that maybe as a first touch, you know, what brought in our leads or MQLs. But, you know, that discipline is maybe the word that keeps coming to my mind. It's required to do that at every single stage. I'm curious to put you on the spot a bit here, but as you mm. dig in, what are some examples of items that have surprised you that move a customer or prospect along in that buyer journey? Because one of the things you said really well is if, if it's not tracked, it didn't happen. Uh, yeah. You know, once you see that happens, you may be finding surprises of of key moments of engagement that really make a difference. Yeah. So I think it's probably a combination of things. And so I, I, I'm going to try to get to your answer, but it might a direct response to your question, but it might be a little the word I like to use is circuitous. Right. When you think about the technology that we have today from marketing tech stack perspective versus what there was years ago, it's absolutely amazing. When you ask me that, right, we have tools that actually can tell us. We're actually getting ready to move off of one system and move to this tool called Caliber Mind that will show you every single interaction on the web, with sales, with us, every piece of content that they've engaged so that we can ultimately, what we're trying to do is design and outline and document what is the buyer's journey. What do we see most consistently, most frequently so that we can actually fabricate it to do more of that, right? So I see a combination of things. I think one of the things that surprised me the most is we really talk about, um, you know, how most you look at B2B buyers and they're not different from B2C buyers. There's a digital journey that happens. And I feel like early in this you know, CML role, I was saying that vernacular, but I wasn't really sure that I believed it. And now I believe it. Based, you, you can see that people are out there doing research. You can see how much they've engaged with digitally. You can see, you know, how your uh, paid advertising is performing, how paid social, how display is performing. You can see all of the engagement points digitally. And, you know, for me, having a really strong, engaging, seamless, enjoyable digital journey is super important to driving demand. I think that's such a such an important thing to highlight. And and one of the areas always so important to me is content, but not creating content just to educate, but creating content to actually progress someone. Uh, you mm -hmm. want to see that that piece of content moved them from one engagement point to the next. I'm curious as you broke down a few different elements of the journey in there, you hit on content. I imagine emails as part of this, all these different systems who on your team is arming you directly with all these insights to pull together that that single view or hopeful one day single view? Is this a marketing ops 
responsibility yeah. in your mind yeah. and, and how is that bundled up and, and presented to you? Yeah, absolutely. So two things, I want to comment on content. And I've said this, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times, content is king. If you don't have good content, you're in trouble. And I'll be honest with you, we haven't always had good content. We haven't had a different form factors. It hasn't been value-based. It hasn't been engaging. We have come a long way with a lot of attention. We're getting better and better and better from a content perspective, third-party content, our own content, blogs, thought leadership, all of that type of stuff. So I'm with you 100% that the right content at the right time in the right form factor is super important. Again, there's technologies that allow you to see you know, what content people are consuming and engaging with and then serving up the next likely piece of content. We're starting to do that um, in our own organization here. So 100% with you on content being so important, content being king. Now, looking, going back and looking at what's working and what isn't working is that marketing operations team. I fundamentally believe I have one of the best MOPS organizations in the whole world. So um, our MOPS leader just uh, went out on maternity leave. She had her fourth daughter. God bless her. God bless her. <laughs> if she I can swear. balance that, then she can uh, manage various inflows to a buyer journey matrix. Right. She, exactly. Exactly. But I'll, I'll tell you, I was like heartbroken that she was going out on maternity leave. And I realized just how immature, <laughs> immature that was. I'm supposed to be celebrating her happy moment. I'm like, please don't leave me. Don't leave me. She's so good. But yeah, that's the team that I rely on to get that data and information. Well, I, I mean, you, you spoke to my heart there as well, uh, not just on, you know, respecting someone's time to go have a baby, but, uh, you know, the content piece is definitely my baby. And, uh, you know, I applaud you for thinking about that so strategically and understanding that it's, it's really about timing. Uh, speaking of timing, it's time for a quick break here. We will be back with a few more questions for you on the marketer's journey. Everything that Nicole unpacked there is very much what I often talk of as a journey matrix. And that is being able to look at the entire buyer journey versus just one segment. Now, many of us fall into the trap of looking at one segment. Maybe we draw it out on a whiteboard or visualize it on a solution like a Miro, but really being able to look at the entire buyer journey from the first point of awareness through to the first purchase and perhaps ongoing purchases is so important. Now, what Nicole is talking about here is the importance of bringing all of those inputs together. The ability to understand the role content has and email has. At every single touch point, we need to understand what resonated, what got them to continue down their journey. When we can look at that, we can start to optimize. We can start to create the right content, fill the holes, fill the gaps. So take Nicole's advice and really make sure that you are gathering as many inputs to a dashboard, perhaps overseen by marketing ops, that gives you visibility to the buyer journey. Nicole, your journey is so unique. Coming from sales to the CMO, it it makes sense. So many of the elements of how you speak to that collaboration. So now I'm going to ask you a few questions that are going to combine these ideas. 
of what we've talked about today. And the first one is as you think of that next future CMO, maybe they're on your team or someone you admire, what mm -hmm. do you think is the right path? Is it to really focus on an area of marketing or be more of that generalist? Oh, that's tough. I actually think it could be either. I think what the next CMO or what any CMO needs to be able to do is look across the entire business, not just look across marketing as a line of business, but how does marketing impact the business overall? Where do the tentacles reach and touch through your entire organization? Whether you can do that being a generalist or a specialist, you have to do it to be successful. That's great advice. And I, th I think aside from the human element of that, I think your earlier points around data are so important. Taking those data points, not just from the marketer's journey, but the, the sales people's journey, the CS journey, all those elements are so key. Another area we we hit on is the importance of content. And you said that, you know, content plays, you know, I think you said content is king or queen, mm -hmm. uh, you know, no, no judgment there. But <laughs> when you think of content that just gets you to click these days, what is it about that content? What makes content great? Yeah, so I think, uh, first of all, I think it has to resonate with you. I think it needs to, you need to think about and really know who your consumers are so that it, it resonates, that it makes sense to them. I think there needs to be value. So there needs to be value metrics. There need to be value associations within your content. I also think content needs to be consumable. There's so many studies that say people time out after five minutes and yet we serve up 25 page white papers like i i often say this am i the only person who's never really read any of these white papers that are 40 pages long i don't have time in my day so i think it's about relevancy i think it's about value i think another thing is timing when are you serving it up and it's how you serve it up i i couldn't agree more on all those elements let's let's double click on the first one with my next question, which is you, you hit on the word relevance, which I sometimes hear interchangeably with personalization. Mm -hmm. What do you think we need to do to be personalized today beyond say, I know your first name is Nicole. Yeah. Um, so when I think about personalization, I go right to my mind goes right to my ABM strategies. Right. And I think that ABM is a term in marketing that if you ask 10 different people, you get 10 different answers. So That's when right. I look at ABM, I'm looking at, I'm saying you've selected a finite, finite set of accounts that you are going to build highly personalized, highly customized content. You understand how that business ticks, what their challenges are, who the players are, any executive leadership changes, what their goals and objectives are, and you tie your message to their story. Right. I think that's personalization and that's relevance. However, I also think that you can look at the industries that you serve in general and you recognize that your businesses, like in the services industry, which is where financial services industries, which is where financial force plays, there's commonality in themes around how our software drives efficiencies, right? How it contributes to the bottom line, how it changes your processes, how it makes you more effective, how it makes you more productive. So it's, it's the relevance of 
What do we do that allows your business to be better, that allows you as our customer to serve your customers better? So I sort of look at that relevancy and that personalization on a scale. I, I think that's really well put and it, it explains how complex and, and trust trust building is so key to that uh, element of being able to personalize within that. Nicole, last question for you today, and this really completes the the journey questions, which is the personal journey. Uh, as you balance the role of a CMO, how do you make time for yourself, for your family, for the things that are more personal? Yeah. Can I say not well? <laughs> is that okay? um, well, I, I will tell you, I've always believed that, um, first of all, I'm more productive when I work, right? Because you, you have to be well-organized. You have to know you have a finite set of time to get what you need done to get done. Um, I've also believed that at some point you have diminishing returns. So after you've been on your 10th, your 12th Zoom call for the day, there's probably not much more that they're going to get, they're going to get out of me. Um, I'm also a believer that work is work. Right. It's important, but it's never important as yourself, as your family, as your loved ones, as your friends. Um, so I just try to do the best I can to say, listen, I'm in work for these 10 hours, these 11 hours. I'm going to give it my all. And then I'm an ex-athlete. So I always have to exercise or I'm going to go crazy. Right. I have five kids. So somebody's going to be hungry. I better get up and make them dinner. or They're going to end up on my Zoom. So just like anybody else, you do the best that you can. Maybe it's not great. Maybe it's okay. Maybe it's perfect. That varies day to day. Just I know that it's important that you have to acknowledge and honor the personal side of your life and what drives you or the professional side is is going to suffer. And that's sort of a symbiotic vice versa relationship. That was an amazing answer. And, and uh, you know, as much as you said, you don't do it well right out of the gate. I, I think I, if I had known you had five kids, I would have just asked the question, how do you balance a CMO job with five kids, let alone the four of, of uh, one of your colleagues that you spoke about earlier? Uh, so much that we shared on this episode, Nicole, I can't thank you enough. For those who have tuned in for the first time and heard Nicole's story, check out all the other episodes of the Marketer's Journey podcast on Spotify, on iTunes, on Google Podcasts, wherever you find. Every Marketer's Journey is a little different. Yours is taking its own path. One day, hopefully, you'll be on here to share it. Until next time, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Marketer's Journey podcast. Big thanks to our sponsors at Uberflip, who help you fuel demand generation with content for an accelerated buyer journey. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, at uberflip.com slash podcast, or anywhere you listen to podcasts.